0: Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 107 Power and Glory. The Emperor Justinian surveyed his devastated capital. The Nica riots had taken their toll on the city of Constantinople. The great church of Saint Sophia, the Hagia Sophia itself, had been completely destroyed, as had a number of other churches and important buildings. The Emperor realized the city may be in ruins but the riots had presented him with the chance to tick off the sixth item on his list. He could rebuild the city as he wanted it. Two great architects were found, and were allowed to design the greatest church in the world. Justinian said they could design it in any way they liked, as long as they stuck to two instructions. It must be the most magnificent church the world had ever seen, and it must be completed as quickly as possible. Justinian was already 50 years old, and wanted to have time to enjoy his glories and he had plenty more glories planned. 10,000 men were employed to build the church. They were split into two teams. 5,000 started at the south end and 5,000 at the north, and they had a competition to see who could finish first. In the end, the building took just five years. This was amazing. Westminster Abbey in London was built over 500 years later, and it took 33 years to finish. When it was completed, the new St Sophia was indeed the most magnificent church in the world, and would remain so for hundreds of years. The dome was a 107 feet high, decorated in simple crosses, and covered completely in gold. It was said it seemed to float above the ground, as if suspended from heaven on a golden chain. There were countless candles and lamps, which gave the inside a beautiful glow, lighting up the glittering mosaics. It was said that the imperial door was made of wood from Noah's Ark, and the high altar contained Christian relics, like nails which fixed Jesus to the cross, and, of course, the true cross itself. The rest of the city was also rebuilt. Justinian was delighted. He had indeed created the most amazing and beautiful city in the world. Ticking this item off his list actually did make him a bit more popular. He still most certainly wasn't loved, but the people realised that here was somebody who thought big, and perhaps he wasn't finished yet. Perhaps there was more to come and there was more to come. Justinian had achieved everything he wanted to achieve in Constantinople. Now it was time for some glory. Justinian the Great stamped his mark on his empire in a way that not many new emperors ever had. He worked so hard at getting things done, he became known as the emperor who never sleeps. In very quick time, he had achieved many of the things he'd set out to achieve. Now it was time to prepare his empire for the big one. It was time, at last, to make the empire great once more. A Roman empire without Rome was ridiculous, thought Justinian, and a Roman empire without Rome was not something he was going to put up with for much longer. But to reconquer Rome, it was first necessary to kick the Vandals out of Africa. Rome needed food, and Rome's food came from the African provinces around Carthage. Justinian knew that if he wanted to hold on to the ancient capital once he'd conquered it, he would need the grain from North Africa the Vandals had to go. There was only one man for the job. Belisarius was now 27 and had developed into a natural leader of men as well as being brilliant at planning and making decisions. Belisarius knew what the campaign needed, planning, planning and more planning, but also being able to make decisions when things change. The great general was brilliant at both of these things. He knew how to plan and he knew how to make quick decisions. Now, As we know, the great Vandal king Giseric had died in 477, and the throne had passed to his grandson. Relations with the empire had been peaceful, and Justinian was hoping he could persuade the king to rejoin the empire without having to go to war. Unfortunately, a cousin of the king called Gelimer decided the time was good to plan a revolt. He succeeded. Gelimer was having none of this idea to rejoin the empire, and quickly made it clear. In 531, Justinian sent a letter to Gelimer, protesting about his overthrow of the old king. Gelimer sent a note back, saying that a monarch like the emperor should mind his own business. This was not peaceful talk. Justinian was quick to act. He planned an invasion. Now, this may seem like it was a good idea, but there were plenty of people who were against it. Only just over 50 years had passed since Basiliscus had the largest invasion army raised by the empire in recent years slaughtered by the Vandals. There were plenty of old people around who could remember the disaster, and many advised the Emperor not to go ahead with his plans. John of Cappadocia complained it would cost too much money. Justinian was a man of action, though, and he was determined. On Midsummer Day 533, Belisarius was sent with an army of just 15,000 and about a 100 ships to North Africa. Basiliscus had had ten times the force when he failed miserably. Could Belisarius do better with far fewer men? Did he really lead them to victory? Was he a good enough commander? Well, yes, yes, and yes. After a little problem with food poisoning caused by bad rations supplied by John of Cappadocia, the party landed in Sicily. Sicily had been captured from the Vandals by the Ostrogoths, and so was, for now, a friendly place for the empire. The historian Procopius was a member of Belisarius' force, and we have him to thank for the fact that we know so much about the North African campaign. On landing in Sicily, Procopius found out from an old friend he met there that the Vandals had no idea the troops were coming, and so Belisarius had the element of surprise. Unlike the idiot Basiliscus, he made very good use of it. Justinian had paid some rebels in Sardinia to revolt against Vandal rule. Sardinia is a large island a long way from Africa, and Gelimer had been forced to send a large number of troops a long way to put the rebellion down. This meant that when Belisarius arrived in Africa, the Vandal army was smaller than it was usually. The Imperial army landed in what is now Tunisia and headed straight for Carthage. Belisarius didn't hang around taking other less important cities, he headed straight for the Vandal capital. If the Vandals were going to be surprised to see him, he thought, he may as well surprise them a lot and do the job quickly. Unfortunately, by the time he was within striking distance of Carthage, he found out the Vandals had heard about the invasion and were ready and waiting for him. Gelimer had arranged his forces where the road to Carthage entered a narrow valley. There was no way the imperial army could go round his men. There would have to be a battle. Gelimer split his forces into three. His brother Amartus would attack the front of Belisarius's army, and his nephew Gibamund would attack the centre. He would lead his own troops to charge the rear once the empire's men were already engaged in battle. A fine plan it was but it didn't work. Amartus was a hopeless commander and attacked too early. The Romans slaughtered his men and the troops under Gibbermund, killing Amartus. Gelimer bravely tried to attack, but his soldiers looked at the imperial army and their barbarian allies, particularly some very scary Huns, and ran away. Gelimer managed to bring many of them back, and soon the fighting was fierce. At a critical moment, as the battle raged on, Gelimer found the body of his brother. He refused to fight on until his brother had been buried and this was all Belisarius needed. He led one final savage assault and the Vandal army scattered and fled. Belisarius marched into Carthage with his wife at his side and had a massive feast which had been prepared for Gelimer. His army was ordered not to carry out even a tiny little sack and the people welcomed them in. Carthage was back in the empire. Gelimer had not given up. He recalled his forces from Sardinia, including his other brother Tsarzo, and formed another great army. Gelimer cut the aqueduct which brought water into Carthage and forced Belisarius to bring his soldiers out to fight a last battle. In the horrible heat of the North African sun, the two sides swung, slashed and charged at each other. There were many more vandals but the imperial troops were better trained and better led. Slowly they began to force the vandals back. Again, Gelimer bravely led from the front, yelling and killing as he went. At the height of the battle, Sarzo, fighting with immense courage, was killed by an imperial soldier. Gelimer froze. He was paralysed with grief and all the fight went out of him. The Romans charged one final time. The Vandals tried to run and were slaughtered by the chasing imperial soldiers. After over a century in barbarian hands, North Africa was Roman again. Seven new provinces were formed, including both Corsica and Sardinia. Less than a year later, all was peaceful, and Belisarius was recalled to Constantinople. When he arrived, he was given a full Roman triumph. He was the first man who was not an emperor to be given a triumph since the end of the Republic. Belisarius marched into the Hippodrome, followed by captured vandals. There was much treasure. In 71 AD, during the Jewish revolt... Titus had taken a sacred candlestick called the Menorah from Jerusalem. The Menorah had been stolen from Rome during the Vandal sack in 455, and now Belisarius returned it to the empire. Justinian later sent it back to Jerusalem, its rightful place. The most important prisoner paraded during the triumph was Gelimer. His purple cloak was torn from his shoulders, and he was made to bow down at the feet of Justinian and Theodora. With his power and kingdom gone, he sadly whispered, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The Vandals simply disappeared from history, their defeat was total. The captured soldiers were forced to join the imperial army and Gelimer himself lived out a comfortable retirement in the empire. So Justinian was still ticking off items from his action list and at last it was making him quite a bit more popular. Now though for the big one, now for the one he really wanted. A Roman empire without Rome seemed wrong it was time to recapture Italy from the Ostrogoths. Recapturing Italy was a bit of a trickier job than the reconquest of Africa. The Ostrogoths were supposed to be friends of the empire, and attacking them really wouldn't be right. The Ostrogoths were popular in Italy, and Justinian's armies may not be welcomed. And the Ostrogoths were Christians, and had the support of the Pope in Rome. And finally, Theodoric was a genuinely great leader. He had political acumen in spades, When Anastasius came to the throne, Theodoric had written to him declaring that his royalty in Italy was modelled on the emperors and that his realm was a copy of the empire. He announced he was only successful because he followed the example set by Constantinople. In the first quarter of the 6th century, Theodoric instigated a major building programme in Ravenna. He built a new cathedral, an imperial-style palace and a mausoleum in which he intended to be buried. The king of Italy built baths and aqueducts, and it seemed to the people that he was leading them as effectively as a real roman emperor would have done the only minor fly in the ointment was his support for the arian version of christianity this didn't seem too much of a problem though in five hundred the goth visited rome for the first and only time he was welcomed with open arms by pope symmachus and the entire senate a fine set of games were held in his honor theodoric stayed in the eternal city for six months living in a palace on the palatine The Gothic king never went back to Rome, ruling his lands from Ravenna. It must be said, though, that he ruled his various peoples with skill and a great deal of tolerance. But all this would have been no use to Justinian. He needed an excuse to invade Italy. He couldn't just march in. He needed a very good reason. And Justinian, being Justinian, was presented with exactly what he wanted. The great king Theodoric died in 526, a year before Justinian assumed the throne, He left his kingdom to his grandson Athalaric, who was just a small boy. The boy king's mother held the power, but soon the Gothic leaders decided she wasn't doing a good job, teaching Athalaric how to be a good ruler, so they took him away from her. She began to write to Justinian about how bad it all was, and eventually they came to an agreement. She would flee to Illyricum, where she would beg the emperor to restore her power in Italy. The excuse was in place. It all went horribly wrong, though, when a new king of the Ostrogoths, Theodohad, invited Amalasuntha, because that was her name, to become joint ruler, and she agreed. The agreement with the empire was off. Justinian fumed. His excuse was gone. But Justinian, being Justinian, soon got another one. Theodohad quickly got tired of Amalasuntha and had her thrown into prison. Justinian saw his chance and declared he was invading Italy to put her back in power where she belonged. This excuse got even better when Theodahad ordered Amalasuntha to be strangled in her bath. Justinian grinned, rubbed his hands together and started to plan. There was, of course, only one man who was going to lead the invasion. After two years in Constantinople, Belisarius was about to go conquering again. The invasion was launched very quickly. Mundus was sent to occupy Dalmatia and Belisarius set sail for Italy. He landed in Sicily and took the island virtually without a fight. The only resistance was from the city of Palermo, but Belisarius was too clever for the defenders. He realised that his men couldn't climb the walls, so he sailed his ships right up to them, got his men to climb the masts and fire arrows down onto the defenders, and then jump onto the battlements. Sicily was imperial again, almost without a fight. This was looking good. Belisarius spent a year or so sorting out a couple of rebellions, and then in the spring of 536, he and his troops landed in southern Italy. The imperial forces marched up the country taking city after city, finding no resistance, until they reached the great city of Naples. This was one of the most important cities in the Gothic kingdom, and it was not going to fall easily. Belisarius sat down to have a bit of a think, and then he had a great idea. One of his men had climbed the aqueduct which took water into Naples. He found a small channel through the walls. This channel was not big enough for a whole army of armed men to get through, but Belisarius knew what to do. He ordered loads of his men to loudly attack a different section of the wall. This made a lot of noise and distracted the defenders so they didn't hear what was going on on the aqueduct. A few troops slowly chipped away at the brickwork, making the channel wider so that men could pass through it. When it was dark, 600 men went through the enlarged hole into the city. They attacked and then a lot more men arrived over the walls while the defenders were busy with the first lot. The city fell quickly. This time Belisarius let his men have a good old sack. He had warned the citizens of Naples what would happen if they didn't give in, and wanted to make sure everyone in Italy knew what would happen if they took no notice of his warnings. The Goths blamed Theodohad for the defeat and immediately deposed him. The new king, a general called Vitiges, quickly had him executed. Belisarius now marched quite slowly on Rome. He was in no hurry. He needed to let his men rest and he knew the Goths didn't have many troops defending the Eternal City. It is said that Pope Silvarius invited him in, but however it happened, Vitiges decided he couldn't defend Rome and withdrew all of his soldiers. Belisarius marched in with his army and Rome was back in imperial hands for the first time in 60 years. Justinian was triumphant he was very happy indeed. The emperor who never slept had reclaimed the ancient capital of the empire with one great general and a few thousand men. This, he thought, was a bit good. His dream of reuniting the whole of the empire and making it one again didn't seem to be out of his reach. Could it really be possible? Next time, we'll find out the answer to that question. If you enjoy the podcast, then please visit the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com There you will find a donation button. This podcast is, and will remain, free, but any donations are, of course, gratefully received. If you'd like to ask any questions, or just leave feedback, then contact me by email, mythandhistory at gmail.com or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.